I feel like this is going to be the anti-justified podcast because I don't even remember this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took surprisingly gonna, few notes. This is going to be like 20 minutes long. <laughs> That's probably justified. Oh! Podcast. My name, as always, is Daily. Uh, joining me this week is my lovely wife and film scholar, Jamie Christensen. Hey! Hey! Hello. I remembered your title. Uh, and also joining me this week, my partner in retrofuturistic crime, Jeff Schwartz. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Daily. And hey. hello, certified film scholar. Not just any old fucking film scholar, certified. <laughs> scholar. She's got the degree. Um, you know, it's funny, I just realized that you're, you're my partner in retro futuristic crime, but uh, you are also, like, in the past right now. Uh, you, you are in Colorado. You have, you've left our sunny shores of, uh, of Boston, uh, and you're in Colorado, which means it's two hours in the past right now. So you are I, literally, I... you are the retro and I am the future. And together we are Captain Planet. <laughs> that is right. Yeah. Uh, so we are indeed. <laughs> we are indeed. Uh, today we are going to be talking uh, all things Tomorrowland. Uh, Brad Bird's love letter to. Well, I'm not really sure what. It's a love letter to something. I can tell you that much. Uh, exactly what I. Jetpacks. Jetpacks. That that I can be sure of. Yes, he really does love jetpacks. But then again. Who doesn't love jetpacks? So I think we all had pretty high hopes going into this movie. Probably not expectations, because I think the reviews uh, that came out in advance were all pretty lackluster. But I think we all certainly, you know, in the months leading up to it, we, we had some pretty high hopes for this. Um, probably uh, mostly because Brad Bird. Brad Bird's a Class A director. I mean, he's a director's director right there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I had super high hopes for this. Like, I I mean, I love Brad Bird. I I told you guys earlier. I just rewatched The Incredibles and was you know marvelous to to go back to that world. So yeah, I, I was yeah I had super high hopes for this and yeah it yeah I, as I said after we saw it uh, I there was many as many things in this that I liked as I disliked. It yeah. was you know so much. So much that had potential, and then so much that kind of fell flat. Well, and I think, you know, I don't know if Brad Bird really has it in him to make a bad movie. And I don't even know if this really no. qualifies as a bad movie. Because there's plenty of things that w- work, like, sort of with on their own within the movie. Like, there are set pieces that sort of, as a standalone piece, like, they... they, they they offer. They work well. They're fun. They're entertaining. I mean, the look of the thing is great. Um, but it just it doesn't really come together in that way. It doesn't. It doesn't no. feel complete. And in a way, big way, it feels like I like I said. I, I honestly don't kind of. I kind of don't know what story it is that Bird wanted to tell here. No, I yeah, I agree, and I I think the the. The problem, or I don't know, the what's I think very characteristic of this is like it feels underdeveloped and over long. 
Like it's like a two hour and 10 minute movie. And yet it feels like there's a whole bunch of stuff that isn't explained well. And that just doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So that's really I, uh, surprising to me because Brad Bird, uh, not that he, you know, cut his teeth, but he has spent time in that, you know, that Pixar world and that Pixar environment where, you know, story is king, where, you know, that, that is, that is mm-hmm. what drives their whole world is, you know, figuring out, you know, getting to the root of the story uh, and and the characters and, like, what propels it forward and not just like, oh, this will look cool, you know? And that's what was really surprising to me is how weak the the story is here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got uh, that really, really fun, great opening act uh, with young Clooney, uh, sort of, mm-hmm. he's, he's got his, his jetpack, uh, and he, go and he, you know, goes to the World's Fair, and uh, discovering Tomorrowland, and that whole sequence is, like, really fun and really thrilling. Um, and then it, it just kind of dissipates, and then we get, you know, stuck with uh, Britt Robertson's Casey Newton for about 40 minutes, and I don't want to say, like, we get stuck with her, because she's a really fun character on her own, but it's like, what, you, you after a while, you sort of, she's just getting, she's sort of running in circles, and you're sort of going, what the fuck does this have to do with the opening like what? Am, what am I watching after a while? You know. Yeah, I I agree, and I I would maybe be more harsh and say that we get stuck with her because I, in in watching the movie, it didn't bother me as much. But in the days that have followed, like that that opening that or that forty minutes following the Clooney, you know, or the the prologue. Clooney's yeah. not in the prologue. Yeah. But, um, it it does feel kind of like it's it's doing a lot of setup and. And I feel like that's the opportunity to, like, really wow us with the world, with the Tomorrowland world, when she yeah. finally gets to go. And we get, like, a brief glimpse of that, or as they say in the movie, we get a commercial for it. Right. And then that's really it, you know? Like, all the sort of things that are touted about the, the movie and the trailer kind of don't come to fruition in a way. Like, that, that kind of sense of, like, gee whiz, like, yeah, wonder. fun adventure, yeah. wonder, is, is kind of lacking throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think that's also, you know, in a weird way, it's a testament to how well that Tomorrowland stuff does work. You know, like the the whether it's Young Clooney going there at the beginning, flying around with his jetpack, or that commercial that she gets to watch. Like that stuff just flat out works. To the, and and you know that it works because you spend the rest of the movie going, when are we going to get back to that stuff? Because that's the only stuff that really like comes alive, and you find yourself really missing it you know, the more time you spend away from it. I don't think it's quite a matter of, like, it's not the movie they sold us. Because um, I think it more or less is. I think it's just that, like, we expected to spend more time in Tomorrowland. And so when you leave the movie, you leave the movie wishing one of two things. You know, like, this is the story of, uh, you know, this this magical world, this, like, parallel, alternate dimension, this parallel dimension where all of the world's great thinkers and artists and inventors, you know, got together and created all of the things that they couldn't create uh, on Earth because of government or something? I don't really know. Um, so, no, man, it's it's all those dystopian novels and movies. That's the real culture. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to get to that. But, I mean, <laughs> if somebody, I was talking to somebody about the movie, or someone was asking me about it on Monday, and they were like, oh, yeah, I heard it was, like, kind of Ayn Randian. And I was like, yeah, but it also wants to be really positive. It's like Ayn Rand if she wasn't, like, a cranky old lady. Like, <laughs> if Ayn Rand was like, come on, guys, we can all do it together. <laughs> then, like, yeah, that's kind of... Because it is very, like, it's John Galtville, somebody said. You know, it's really, like, that's really what it is. It's like all of the, 
you know, the, the great people who need to be rewarded for their greatness need to get away from, like, oppressive government and, uh, uh, you know, the economy, that you know, business that's going to drive profits. No, they need to be able to do their magical stuff. Oh, wait, they hate the government and they hate business? How does that work? Well, I, I mean, like, uh, <laughs> I know, but it's like human greed and stuff like uh, that. Yeah, it's not, cool. obviously... You know, businesses. You know, corporations are people and, and whatnot. <laughs> uh, I think that's not only that's in dispute anymore. Um, but so you so you end up with this like this great setup. What if all the world's great dreamers got together in a place where they could you know let their imaginations run wild and build all of this stuff and, and kept it all from us forever? Right. Didn't and, share it with any of us for reasons that are never really explained. Which is a big problem, and that's like that's one of many problems in this movie where it's sort of like you're sort of left scratching your head, going, "Yeah, okay, wait, but if the world is so shitty, like, why don't you just?" Give us some of that, those fucking self-repairing robots and, like, all of this amazing tech. Like, wouldn't that solve a lot of the world's problems? I mean, one of the reviews I read literally said, like, just give us the fucking teleportation windows, those portal windows. You could stop world hunger tomorrow. Like, come on. Uh, and, and again, it's just, like, also, never addressed. create, like, a million other alternate dimensions, like a million other Tomorrowlands? Like, if we've destroyed this planet Earth, can they make a million other Tomorrowlands and send us all to them? That's a good point, Jamie. Because where where is Tomorrowland? Like yeah. we don't know. Is it's it very... in another dimension? Is it in another planet? Is it in the future? Like where the fuck is it? When it's they never travel answered. to it, I feel like they made some vague hints at saying it was in another dimension. Essentially, yeah, it's pretty unclear. As are a lot of things. I think it's supposed to be in another dimension because I feel like there's, and maybe maybe this is supposed to be the explanation that it's just really not clear in the film. But I feel like what they were saying is, like, that Tomorrowland is a place where all of these people could do all whatever they want, invent all of these things. And I think maybe part of that is that they're in this alternate dimension, and maybe it's a place where physics works differently, you know, where the laws of well, physics they... don't operate the same way. And that's why you can have, like, hoverboards and, you know, hoverboards, but you can have, like, anti-gravity platforms, and you can have teleportation and stuff. Like, maybe that stuff only works in Tomorrowland and it wouldn't work on Earth. Yeah, but I think you're you're giving the text more credit than it deserves. No, I, I do too. In my, in my in my teacher voice, like that that none of that is there yeah. in the movie. You know, we're just extrapolating. So. No, absolutely. I think but, I I'm wondering if maybe there isn't like a half assed like clue that's where like that's sort of what they wanted to imply but just didn't do it clear enough. Um, I'm just wondering like if it is in another dimension, did they find it somehow? Yeah, I think they just discovered Did it. Did they create it? Like, I don't... I don't think they discovered it. I think they just... I don't think they, they created it. I think they just discovered it. And why did it all shut down? Well... Like, by the time we get to present day, it pretty much doesn't exist anymore, and there's nobody living in it, and yeah. all the things you see in the commercial don't exist anymore, but we're never told why. Yeah, what I... What happened to all the people that were there creating ideas? Where did they go? Yeah, I kind of agree. That's another one of those like big gaping plot holes. They get there, and it's a seemingly abandoned city. Um, and again, you've got these like you know auto repairing robots. So why is anything broken in that and city? You know, if Hugh Laurie's whole thing, if Hugh Laurie's whole thing was like, well, the world is going to end, and no one heeded our warnings, but we're not going to end. Our world is going to keep going on. What world? You yeah. have no people. Where is everyone? Well, if this is the good, safe place to be while world while the world ends. Why did everyone leave? Where and are they? That's one, and I remember having that uh, moment uh, in the theater 
uh, where at the very, at the very, very end, uh, when uh, he, you know, they zip out on the jetpack and he like crashes after the thing blows up and he like crashes in the pool there. Um, there's like a bunch of people just sort of like wander out in the background. You can just see like a bunch of shadows of people oh, just sort I, of like no, walk I out. I thought that was the future because he's still in the tower where the thing shows him the future. I thought it was supposed to be a glimpse of the future of what it could be. No, 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 no. After after the the monitor is exploded and he grabs her and the two of them crash in the jetpack. Yeah, about. he crashes in the pool. They're outside of the thing now. They're just like out in oh, the park in tomorrow. I just interpreted that as it was supposed to be a glimpse of the future. Oh no no, they're just like out like, out in a parkland now. If you so. build it, they will come. Like, oh, if, no. like, the people will come to you. No, that's what I say. It's like, all of a sudden, all these people come out, and you're like, wait, have there been people there the whole time? Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck's going Why does your city look like shit if there I are th- actual I humans there? I thought Tomorrowland was trying to tell Clooney how to build the future. No, no, there's just people that <laughs> magically appear when shit explodes, I guess. So, um... You had... Daly, you had a slightly, like, okay, plausible explanation for why it's abandoned. If Do you remember what you said? Because we were talking about this, too. Um, you said, basically, that uh, um, they started cutting people off because, like, the people they were getting were from this, you know, cynical future, and so no one was worthy of being yeah, in yeah, yeah. Land anymore. Well, yeah, say, which, again, stopped, we're yeah. not told this at all. We have to read into it and extrapolate, but yeah. it maybe is an explanation for why it's all abandoned and gone to shit. Yeah, exactly. It's like they, they say that they actively stopped recruiting people, um, and you could, uh, you know, suppose that that was probably, I mean, it was at least probably in the 80s, if not closer to the 60s. I mean, it looks like, you don't really see exactly how old Clooney is when he gets kicked out, um, but I, I mean, I, the, he I looks that he was supposed to be in his like twenties or 30s. yeah, he looks older. Like he, he's a small figure walking away, but he's certainly not a little kid anymore. So um, my guess is he was there in the sixties. He was probably there for you know fifteen, I mean at least like ten, fifteen years maybe. So it was probably like late seventies, early eighties when they kicked him out, and then presumably stopped recruiting people immediately thereafter. So. There have been no new entrants. There have been no new citizens of Tomorrowland for 30 years. So it would make sense, I guess, that if it's literally like one city and no new people showing up, that the population's going to die off a little bit. But, yeah, no, st- you know, I agree that you could sort of interpret uh, interpolate this stuff, or not interpolate, uh, ex- extrapolate. You want to inter- You wish you were interpolating the stuff. Really, you're extrapolating the stuff, which is what I want to, really what I want to say is, you know, we were talking uh, in the last episode about Mad Max and how what's great about Mad oh, Max is just... there's all of this stuff that they don't explain, but they sort of hint at, and you get to fill it in with your own imagination, and that's part of the joy of the movie. Here, it's all it's almost like they're going for the same thing where they just don't explain a bunch of stuff, but they do it in a in a way that makes you angry. They do it in a in a way where you feel like you just didn't think of this stuff. You just didn't plot this stuff out properly, and I'm left with plot holes as opposed to possibilities of what could be going on. And you're like, well, I don't understand this, so I'm forced to come up with some kind of half-assed explanation to try and make this movie make sense to me. You you stole the words out of my mouth. I, I love you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I wonder, you know, we we could. It would be so easy to just make this another Mad Max podcast, which we should not do. We should uh, yeah. stay on topic. I but know. but 
one of the things or one of the many things that have sort of come up in the since Mad Max's release has been, um, you know, how they put all the effort into giving backstories to the Doof Warrior and to all the other characters. They all have a story and they all have a, you know, something going on with them and motivations. Yeah, Miller figured the out the background uh, history for all of these characters, even if it's not on the, the, the screen, it's in Miller's head. Right, but I think it is on the screen, even though it's not explicit. You yes. know, I feel like the work that was put into all the backstory is there, and it's the thing that allows us to, you know, make all these different interpretations and arguments of what's going on, and have it feel like this is a fully thought world, rather than in Tomorrowland, where I think you're right, where they they kind of vaguely sketch something and, but it's not filled in with enough detail um, yeah. in the way that, you know, Mad Max is so that we are left with all these sort of gaping holes and, and we don't really know what to make of it. So, yeah. which it, feels like such a missed opportunity. Cause that's the thing that kind of, in in recent days thinking about it has disappointed me. It's like, they, they don't feel like they want to explore the world. They don't want to do any world building. And, and that's kind of disappointing because they have potential to do something interesting, but you know, they didn't really follow through with it yeah it's and i weird. want to know how they made tomorrowland like how they got to the new dimension like that's like such a big thing and yet it's just not addressed at all it's just Ex- there exactly uh I, again it's weird it feels like in a way you know like brad bird didn't do the legwork which is not a thing i would ever feel myself accusing brad bird of doing so it also it almost kind of makes me wonder you know is this a case and i have no basis for this speculation at all but is this a case of like disney stepping in and making some editorial changes over this movie. Um, so, case in point, mm-hmm. like, you know, they spend half the movie like say, talking about how, uh, Britt Robertson, about how Casey has, like, how she's special. How she has this this superpower of, like, positive thinking that she can, you know, change the, that she has the ability to change the probability uh, just by willing that the future doesn't have to be terrible, um, and that her positivity could, you know, fix everything. Um, and it seems silly, because if you know that positivity fixes everything, that's not an inborn power. Anyone can be positive. Anyone can be like, I don't accept the future. Like, if you tell anyone this is the key to saving us all, then all anyone has to do is be like, all right, well then, let's save the world. Right. The difference is, I think the the argument Bird is trying to make is that no one is saying we can fix it, like we can, this is the key, this is how we fix things, everyone's just sort of wallowing in doom. Uh, but the, the bigger issue, like from a story perspective, is if you spend the movie talking about how, you know, Casey has this power of positivity that can change the world, and the problem, like the thing that's causing all the negativity is this machine that is beaming bad vibes out to all of the world, isn't the logical solution hook Casey up to the machine and beam her positive vibes out to the world? <laughs> like it feels like that's what the movie something to do. Right. Well, heaven forbid. No, but that's what I'm saying. It feels like the movie is sort of setting that up the whole time, and then in the end, they're just like, "No, we're gonna blow it up, dude. We're just gonna, we're just gonna, blow it up. We're just gonna drop it on, uh, drop, drop it on Doctor House instead. And we'll I do just, it that way." So now is the time that maybe we should talk about our the one thing we all seem to agree on at the end of the movie, which is, how is Hugh Laurie the villain? Yes. He's not... I don't understand. Yeah, yeah and I don't remember the, the last time... The world is ending. We tried to warn everyone. They just wouldn't listen, so we've given up on them. 
How is he the villain? That is what's happening. Yeah. I um, don't understand. And I don't remember the last time I saw a movie where a character literally just turned to the camera and delivered the film's message point Especially blank. Especially from the guy who invented the line, you caught me monologue. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> kind of amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is just, it is literally like a slap in the face to the audience. Like, hey, hey, this is what this movie is about. Do you like, do you, this in is the, the message. In the third act. Yeah. We're now going to tell you what this movie was about. I know we've been really unclear up till now, but let me explain it to you really bluntly. But I just don't understand. Like, we really are being faced with all these global catastrophes. And there are people in the world who are standing up and being like, hey, this stuff is bad. Let's try to fix it. And those people are being ignored. So Hugh Laurie appears to be the stand-in for those people. So are you telling me that all the, like, climate scientists are the villains? I don't get it. No. What are you saying, Brad Bird? I don't think that is the case. Like, I don't, I don't think Brad Bird would equate the two, would equate Hugh Laurie with, like, climate change scientists, for example. Um, I think... I think what he's trying to say, and I don't think he's doing a very good job of it, but I think what he's trying to say is, uh, again, like, it's that lack of positivity, it's that lack of hope. Uh, uh, Hugh Laurie's deal is, uh, we looked into the future, we saw global catastrophe, and we thought, if we show everyone the global catastrophe, that will spur them into action. So all, all we should have to do is say, this is what's going to happen, and everyone should go, oh, shit, well, I don't want that to happen, so let me figure out a way to stop that from happening. Instead, what happens is everyone goes, well, that looks crazy, but fuck it, bring on the wasteland, you know? It, I think what, what Bird is trying to say, uh, again, poorly, is that it's not enough to just say, hey, guys, the world is going to shit, this is what's going to happen. You have to say, guys... Here's a hopeful, positive salute. Like here's here's my here's my answer. Here's here's what we need to do uh, in order to make the world a better place. As opposed to saying, guys, the world's going to be a bad place. You need to present a positive vision. You need to present a positive alternative uh, to the wasteland. You can't just say, guys, there's a wasteland coming. It just coming. feels like his positive vision is like pretty pictures and nice songs. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what I was gonna like say. Don Draper. Buy the world a coat, <laughs> and world peace will have been achieved. Yeah. Whereas the actual people who are like you, Lori, who are saying, hey dudes, the world is ending. They're not presenting a happy picture. They're presenting, like, here's what we need to do to fix it. We need to reduce fossil fuel emissions. We need to, you know, decrease the number of cars on the road. We need to decrease our carbon footprint. And people are like, eh, I don't want to. Yeah. But I just sort of feel like, is Brad Bird trying to say that those aren't the solutions we need? That we need artists and I, dreamers I and think what he's... people who will make us feel joy so that eventually we will come to choose to reduce I... fossil fuel emissions on our own? Yeah, I mean, happy hippie individuals? Well, I don't think it's really a happy hippie thing, but I think it's more a matter of, like, uh, you know, just saying, guys, we need to reduce fossil fuel emissions. And it like, may not be sexy and romantic, but hey, it's what we need to do. No, I know, but I think what, what he's, like, I think he's trying to say, like, what, what we need is not, like, uh, doom and gloom and, like, a sort of 
pragmatic, like, simple, boring approach, what you need to affect real change is Steve Jobs, is Elon Musk. You need someone who's going to come out with some great product. $10,000 gold iWatch is going to save the future. Yes, I think that's kind of what Brad Bird is trying to say. I but don't I think agree. I think what he's trying to say is like you don't say like guys, we need to have fewer cars on the road, we need to reduce emissions. I think what he's saying is you need someone who's going to be like guys, here's the cool new awesome car that you want to drive that also will reduce emissions and help revert the All greenhouse right. gas well, effect, as much you know. As I wish it were true. Life is not a West Wing episode. No, I know. So. No, I'm. But I'm saying, like, I think that's what the that's what he's sort of equating with that older vision Again, of the future. You know, I fail to see how Hugh Laurie is the villain. No, I don't think. Well, boring, I mean, pragmatic. Yeah. No, I Hugh agree. Hugh Laurie is not the villain. It's weird because he's like the villain of the movie, and yet Brad Bird clearly wants everyone to walk out of the theater agreeing with him. You know, like he is literally stating the the thesis of the film. So, um, but I think he wants you to. Yeah, go, no, it, no, go ahead, Jeff. No, that's fine. We're it's suffering from the time delay here, so I feel like I keep inadvertently cutting you off. Oh, it's all right. Um, no, I think you guys were talking, I'm totally in agreement with what you guys were talking about. Um, and, but I think this gets at sort of um, perhaps an unintended consequence of the message, which is that, you know, Bird, I think you're right, Daley, that he wants us to have like, you know, um, a sense of, of vision for the, for the future. Like yeah. it's not, not so much like the pragmatic solutions, like, you know, Hugh Laurie would represent. It's like, oh, we need a, a grand vision for the future. Right. We need NASA, we need moon landings, we, we need rocket ships to the stars, artists. yeah. Yeah, well, it's that. I think it's also it's, it's our artists, which is why though, like that's included. Those are the people who are in Tomorrowland. It's not just scientists. It's yeah. people who are, you know, like Walt Disney, you know, mm-hmm. like that's, it's, it's that kind of um, thing. But then the, so if you carry that through to its logical conclusion, it's the fault of artists then that we are not dreaming enough and that we're not sort of coming up with these these ideas and, and that we're wallowing in doom and gloom. And so I think that's a really weird argument to make, that, that our art is the reason that we're not actively pursuing solutions to our biggest problems. Like, because, you know, because The Matrix and because Hunger Games and all these other dystopian stories have, you know, infected our culture, that's yeah. why we're, you know, that's why we're not dreaming big anymore, which I just, I don't think that that holds water as, a, as an argument. But then what does it say when the artist who's trying to make that point does it horribly ineffectually? Yeah. I and, know. It doesn't speak well. Of yeah. The, and like arguably. Argument. Yeah. And arguably a lot of the, you know, dooming, like the, the dystopian, like post-apocalyptic future movies and stuff that have come out recently are feel way more positive and hopeful. I mean, like. Uh, Fury Road and that though they're not being like yeah let's live like Pan M they're trying to make you look around and be like hey let's not go toward Pan M I know but that's my point is that like uh, you know Fury movies like like Hunger Games or Fury Road they present this really bleak vision of the future with the sort of like under thematic underpinning of like guys, this is where we're going and this is not a good place to go, but there can still be hope and we can still fight against this kind of thing and we can fix it, as opposed to Tomorrowland, which just feels like uh, preachy and lecturing, like, guys, come on, fix our shit, you know? But without actually giving me any reason 
like any character or any uh, storyline that brings any kind of hopeful outlook to the future. Yeah, no, I think this is clearly a movie that started with a theme and then they tried to pin a story on top of it rather than doing it the other way around where you start with a story, you start with interesting characters or an interesting world, and then you, as you go along, you discover what are the themes and what are the bigger ideas that we're playing with here. Yeah, and it also feels like, I mean, maybe I think part of this kind of comes from you know, that, I don't want to say nostalgia, but that sort of idealization of uh, of that era of history, where it's like, you know, it's remembering all of the gee whiz, golly, future, like, you know, moon landings and 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 hope and like what the what the future could hold the way that they that people looked at the future in the 60s um without remembering that the 60s were actually pretty fucked up time the 50s and 60s like we kind of idealize them a little way like mad men kind of idealizes it to a certain degree but like like oh look at these savvy men in their suits and their and their fedoras and oh we're gonna go get drinks and we're gonna smoke a lot of cigarettes and oh aren't we awesome you know but at the same time it's like yeah but also like minorities well, could do fuck all, little, you know? Well, yeah, and, and I mean, so yeah, there's all the stuff that's going on in the culture, but let's even, you know, let's talk just specifically about these sort of scientific advances. The whole reason we're going to the moon is not out of a sense of wonder and discovery. We're going because the fucking Russians are going. Yes. And we got to beat the Russians to it. That's why there's a space race, you know. Absolutely. It's completely for political reasons. That's why NASA gets the budget that it gets in the 60s and why it's never had that budget since. Absolutely. So that, that Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great thing. He's like, you know, start spreading the rumor that China's going to Mars and we'll go there tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to say. we want to beat those damn Chinese, you know. Like, we're American. You know, so that's yeah, say, the best thing for NASA would silly. be if China's if China actually started investing in their space program. It would be the best possible thing for NASA. Yeah. So anyway, so my point is, it's just it's silly to to just focus on the with looking at what actually motivated all the technological and scientific advances of that era in time. Oh, really? Yeah, we're losing you a little bit. Is it better? It's, well, I think we just caught up with you. <laughs> uh, okay. What was the last thing I said? No, we got you. I think we, it, we didn't lose anything. There was just a break, and then it caught up. So. Okay. Um, editing for. Yeah, exactly. That's what post production's for, man. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll actually edit this shit, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just leave all this stuff in, and then you'll be going, "Ah, you fucking lazy asshole! Why didn't you edit this shit?" <laughs> Um, the completely useless pins. The completely useless pins? Yeah. yeah. What would you like to say about the completely useless pins? So, we start out by seeing the pin, which sort of brings Casey to Tomorrowland, and then we find out it doesn't really bring Casey to Tomorrowland. It takes her to a fake commercial for Tomorrowland. Yeah. And then they have to go in the freaking Eiffel Tower to actually get to Tomorrowland. Yeah. But then at the end, they want to recruit a whole bunch of people... So they give them pins. Yes. And they all pop up outside it just like she does. And all I could think is like, all right, cool. We're going to have like 200 people running into walls in another second. So are the pins now actually coded to really bring you to <laughs> Tomorrowland? Or do are they all going to run into walls and then they all have to go to the Eiffel Tower or find some other way? And Like, are we supposed to think that their ingenuity will eventually lead them to the real no, Tomorrowland? No, 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 no. I think it's... So they were saying, you know, they closed off Tomorrowland when they stopped recruiting people and they exiled uh, Athena and, and George Clooney, um, that they, they basically, they closed all the doors. Um, they, they had just those portals, the same way they end up on the little uh, Caribbean island at the end. 
uh, when, yeah, but they stepped through a portal. Right, exactly. The pin didn't get no, 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 exactly. But I'm saying Tomorrowland has has the ability to open portals wherever they want, however they want, between Tomorrowland and the Earth. They just stopped doing it because they None stopped those recruiting people. Went people. Through a portal. What? None of those people went through a portal at the very end. Yeah. No, no, they're seeing the commercial. The idea is the pin is a recruiting tool. You go around, you give people the pin, and you show them this amazing world. And if they look at it and go. Yeah, I want to go there. Then you open a portal and you bring them to Tomorrowland. The idea is it's like, uh, I don't want to say it's like the red pill and the blue pill from the Matrix, but it's, I mean, it's <laughs> like the you, you give them a taste and you say, is this, is, is this your thing? And if it is your thing, you know, it's an Excalibur test, basically, kind of. Except you don't have to do anything. You no, know, you don't have to do anything. It's literally just you see this and then you decide well, so if you're going to go. how do they know you want to go? Well, ideal, I, theoretically, ideally, the recruiter would you're actually... You're making everything up. I love that you're saying all this with complete certainty. <laughs> well, you know, the recruiter would do this, and they just give them a taste of it, and if they want to go, no, you're just making all this up. You're just saying it with a lot of certainty, but none of this is in the movie. No, no, I actually think this is one of the no, few things that is in the movie. you're making it up. No, 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 no. Yes, I actually think this is one of the few things that's in the movie because that uh, that prologue scene... As I scene, say to my students all the time when I ask them about a detail from the story and they make it up from space, put your finger on the part that says there are recruiters that say <laughs> th- that they will then take you if you like what you saw in the pin. I, I will. I will. Stop talking and I will. Stop talking and I will. Stop talking and I will. I don't even have to be there to break up the marriage. <laughs> damn it, Jeff. <laughs> Doing it remotely now. Uh, no, 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 I mean, I think this is one of the few things where that is sort of Mad Maxian in that, you know, the, the, the pieces of it are actually in the movie, which is that, that prologue piece. I mean, I think that prologue piece is uh, more akin to uh, what, it's, what the recruiting process is supposed to be, which is, you know, you find a person who shows some promise. Hey, he built a jetpack. It kind of works, but he can get there, you know? And then you give him this pin. Now, granted, she sneaks him in because it's like, oh, we're going to, you know, use it as a way right, to get you through, through the thing. through a concrete way. The right, right, right. the pin got him nowhere. Right, right, right. No. So you have to, you have to, I think you have to put the young Clooney bit and Britt Robertson together, um, which is, uh, you know, she, they say, oh, she's still recruiting. Even though she's been exiled, like, oh, she's still been out there recruiting. She had a bunch of pins. She went through a bunch of other candidates. None of them panned out. But the way it's supposed to work, and she says, like, oh, you, uh, when she tracks Britt Robertson down at uh, the nostalgia shop, and we're, we got to talk about that, we haven't even gotten to that, um, but when she tracks her down at the nostalgia shop, she's like, oh, you left before I could give you any context, you know? I think the, the idea is, you find a, uh, a candidate that is, you know, shows promise, you give them this pin so they can see what, they, what happens and what Tomorrowland is like. And if they're uh, up for it, you recruit them. You say, okay, would you like to go to this place? Because I can take you to this place right now. And then Tomorrowland clearly has the ability to just open these portals. So you would open a portal and you would just take them in. It's not that the pins are supposed to be like magic teleportation devices. And I don't think you're supposed to read that last scene with all the people in the wheat field as like they were all transported there. I think it's they're all viewing the commercial at the same time, basically. That seems like a lot of work. If, she didn't just if I may the commercial mediate. on the first time. Well, I like mean... 18 tries. Well, yes. find a field. That's true, but did, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If I may mediate... Oh, please and, do. And, and, for, and for once, try to reconcile the marriage rather than put a wedge in it. Something um, new and exciting for us. <laughs> um, I think I like your explanation, Daly. I think it makes sense. 
I think I might still be a little bit more on Jamie's side, if only because let's think about the kind of storytelling that you in this movie. This is not a movie that really asks you to take disparate pieces and put them together because it trusts your intelligence. If anything, the Hugh Laurie speech proves that they don't trust your intelligence, that you, they don't think you'll understand the message, and therefore we have to have a you know, House of Cards-esque to-the-camera monologue in order yeah. to spell it out. Yeah. So I feel like if that was really the intention that they, that they wanted you to link the opening bit with the Britt Robinson stuff later on, then they might have changed things, you know, and or the story itself would have been told in a slightly different way, and I feel like it's told in a much more blunt force kind of way. So that's that's my thought. Nah, I like my explanation. I think it makes sense. Um, but let's let's get. We've I mean we've been talking a lot about sort of the thematic stuff, which is you know very troubling uh, or very troublesome, and the uh, you know the, uh, the the plot holes, which of which there are many. Um, but you know I think there are like we said at the beginning, there are pieces of this movie that work, you know, there are elements to this that kind of work on their own, which is why I don't think it's like a bad movie, I think it's just sort of uh, misguided, or it's it's just sort of not well executed, um, and, you know, but but there are things that I enjoy, you know, that whole, uh, there's the, the whole scene in Clooney's uh, ramshackle house when all the robots attack him, and it becomes like the fun house of robot doom, like, that, that, that just works on, like, every bit about that is great. Um, I really love every, every piece that, the only drawback for me, or the only stumbling block for me, is that by the time we saw it in the movie, it was at least the third time I had seen that scene. Because uh, they released that as a, like, a standalone trailer, uh, basically just a cut-down version of that scene, and then there was a slightly expanded version of that trailer that played in front of... Uh, what was it, Avengers? Something we saw in, in IMAX. I think it was Avengers. Uh, yeah, because they're both Disney movies. So yeah, I think it, it played in front of uh, IMAX screenings of Avengers. Um, was like a longer version of that that robot funhouse scene. Um, so, I mean, there were some pieces of it here and there that didn't that I hadn't seen, like when he when she finds his little like viewfinder recording of him as a little kid. Like, that's a cool little bit. But yeah, like, that part's great. I just wish I hadn't seen it three times by the time I got to the movie. Um, but I like that bit. The the funhouse, uh, the the nostalgia shop scene is really fun. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key is great. Uh, I mean, the the only heart of the Ghostbusters, as far as I'm concerned. Keegan-Michael like, Key. candidate. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. Um, but, I mean, again, but that sort of, that, that nostalgia shop scene might actually kind of sum up the whole movie in a way. Because, you know, it's a, it's a great bit on its own. Um, all of those characters are really fun. Uh, and, like, when the action starts, it's, like, it's staged really cool. The, the time bubble that freezes everything. And that whole fight scene, it's just, like, in a shop filled with all of the things that Brad Bird loves. So it's like, oh, I'm going to use a giant Han Solo frozen in carbonite as a weapon. And, like, there's every little, like, uh, audio cue in that scene or like it's like there's a million little easter eggs in that scene you know you could watch that like ten times and find something new to love every time but at the same time like 
the logical underpinnings of that scene make no goddamn sense. Why does Tomorrowland have a nostalgia shop in the middle of Texas, which they are full-time staffing with a pair of robots, in case somebody shows up with one of these pins, even though they theoretically stopped recruiting people, like, 20 fuck-off years ago? Like, is Hugh Laurie really obsessed with that teenage robot girl that much? Like, it just seems like such a, such a waste. Like, why would, you, why would you do that? That doesn't make any goddamn sense. I didn't, okay, maybe I'm just oblivious or, you know, it's been a long week for me, so forgive me <laughs> yeah, if I don't You moved remember. halfway across the country in the last 48 yeah. hours. Yeah. So, I didn't get that the nostalgia shop was in Tomorrowland. I thought it was just, that was like... Wait, what? No, there's not in Tomorrowland, it's She's in Texas. Gotten... But, uh, yeah, right, right. But, but Tomorrowland, like, you know, Hugh Laurie, clearly, those are clearly Hugh Laurie's robots that are there waiting for someone to show up with one of these pins, you know? Like why would they? Why would they go to all that trouble? Oh, you're right. Okay, okay, I get it. Yeah, no, sorry. When you said Tomorrowland has a nostalgia shop, I was like, wait, that was in Tomorrowland. Oh, no, I really don't understand this movie. <laughs> <laughs> wait, did she jump dimensions and not even realize the movie forgot to tell us? Yeah. I mean, Texas is its own thing. All that due is respect, true. Jamie. It is kind of its own dimension. It's true. It's true. I won't argue. It's very true. Um, but can we talk I, uh, to uh, not make this all just shitting on the movie? Can we talk about other like things that we liked? Like, yes. I mean, I guess you like those scenes. Um, I liked the actress who played Athena. I think she's amazing and yeah. do great things in her career because she is the most charismatic, interesting character in the whole movie, and she's a robot. Absolutely. You know? like, no, I think she's. I think she's fantastic. I really. I'm very excited to see where that where that uh, actress goes. Um, my question to you. Um, at what point, or or at any point, were you uh, like creeped out by like the her and Clooney relationship? Like, did you think Clooney was gonna like make out with her at the end of the movie? Because there's uh, a moment there where it's real dicey. We're like, is Clooney about to like kiss this twelve year old? Because I don't know if I'm okay with that. <laughs> maybe at the end, but it, it honestly it didn't occur to me as we were watching it. So, okay. but I can see in retrospect that it's kind of a skeez- situation uh yeah no and like i said i think i think there's a lot of fun little touches to this movie um i appreciate uh you know i like the the jetpack at the beginning like that whole design is really fun um i actually really it, it like it's very of that time it feels homemade but also like the kind of thing you'd see on a, like, out of a comic book, you know, like, the thing you would buy out of the back of a comic book, that kind of thing. Um, I also, I really like uh, the the wardrobe in this movie, for the most part. Um, there's something that kind of hit me, like, halfway through. Um, young Clooney, for I am convinced at the beginning that young Clooney is basically dressed as Hogarth Hughes from The Iron Giant. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fairly convinced he's wearing, like, the exact same outfit. But, uh you know, Casey, it's at, at a certain point, um, I think when she's running around before she meets Clooney, she's got this kind of, like, it's not really a 50s throwback style fashion, but it kind of is. Like, she's got, she's not wearing, like, skinny jeans. She's got jeans, they've got, like, cuffs at the bottom, she's got, like, some old sneakers, um, and then she's got this kind of jacket that looks like something that Marty McFly would have been wearing when he went back to see his parents in the 50s, you know? Like, it's got that kind of pattern, it's like that brown, and it's got kind of a a pattern, like a check pattern in the front. Um, It it felt like very, uh, it's almost timeless, but like, because it doesn't really, like, strike you as, like, 
you know, old-timey or, or retro, but when you look, when you actually kind of stop to look at it, you're like, oh, that is kind of, that does kind of feel 50s-ish a little bit, you know, that feels like an old-school kind of, like the kind of thing she would have found in a thrift shop or whatever, without, like, screaming, like, hey, look at me, I'm dressed like a person out of time, you know? <laughs> I did not notice any of this, but I, I like it. I, I think, and the, I mean, in the commercial for Tomorrowland, I kind of, that, I noticed the wardrobes there, because that did feel very retro. Like, yeah. you know, back in the time where we used to think that in the future, everyone will dress in jumpsuits of silver and, yeah, you know, exactly. chrome. Yeah, exactly. I so. like when the when the evil robots come, uh, particularly in that first scene when they show up at the nostalgia shop after it's been, like, blown up and shit, and they're all wearing, uh, like, like, black suits, but then they're wearing these, like, black, like, mock turtlenecks underneath. Uh, mm-hmm. They're claiming to be like Secret Service or something. We're like, yeah, no, that totally looks like how people in the '60s thought people in the future would dress. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, kind of quasi beatnik, you know, yeah. but a little, little more futuristic. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think it's like there are a couple of like little, just little, like throwaway gags that I kind of enjoy. Like, uh, when she is picking up her stuff, uh, at, uh, uh, the police station at the beginning, uh, one of the, her possessions is a pack of Beeman's gum. Like, who the fuck chews Beeman's gum anymore? That's, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a nice little bit. Uh, just, just a little throwaway gag. Um, and also when Clooney, in fact, uh, I was trying to figure out how long Clooney was in Tomorrowland. Uh, it's explicitly stated. I wrote it down. He gets kicked out in 1984. Oh, which is, I mean, come on, like, it's just, it's like a little on the nose, but I'll allow it, you know, it's okay. Um, I think it's pretty on the nose. (laughs) I think the nose is pretty, I think this is like a Cyrano de Bergerac nose that we're talking about. Um, But we, we talked about this uh, a little bit after the movie, Um, and Jeff, you started to bring this up uh, earlier, you know, I think the biggest missed opportunity in this movie is, like I said, Tomorrowland works so well. Like, all of the stuff in the prologue uh, and in the commercial makes Tomorrowland look totally awesome. Uh, To the point that you get really upset that you don't spend any more time there. Um, And it makes you, by the time it left, like, I realized, like, I didn't want to see this movie. What I wanted to see was a different version of this movie. And there are two versions... That, uh, that we sort of, Jeff and I were talking about this a few days ago, we came up with. I don't know which one I like better. Um, one is a version that's just the story of young Clooney going to Tomorrowland in the 60s and, you know, finding all of these, you know, coming across this new world with all these cool discoveries and inventing this monitor device and seeing the future and maybe himself saying, like, no, positivity, we can solve it. And, you know, like having that whole, basically that whole story encapsulated in the actual 60s as opposed to making it nostalgia for the 60s, you know? I think that mm-hmm. is feels more like the story Bird actually wanted to tell, you know? Yeah, and I think probably it's not told because there's a mistaken belief that if there isn't some modern-day connection that people won't follow you into a fantasy world, yeah. you know? Like, how many fantasy stories can you think that start off in the real world, in the modern day, and then eventually make their way to another world, you know? Exactly. And, and there are very successful versions of that story, so I'm not poo-pooing that as a trope, but it feels like that was the sort of cynical thinking here, was that we need a modern-day component in order to get people into this world, otherwise people won't buy it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I think there's another version of the story of this movie 
that I would also like to see. And I think I'd like to see this one better, even though it feels like the version, like, not quite the story Bird wanted to tell, um, which is, you know, the story of Edison and Eiffel and Tesla uh, and who was the fourth one? Uh, I've forgotten now. It's Edison, Eiffel, uh, Tesla, and Jules Verne. Was it Jules Verne? Yeah, yeah Jules and Verne. Jules Verne. Uh, like of the of the four, the original founders of Plus Ultra, uh, sort of discovering this parallel dimension and founding this city and creating this world. You know, like that is like also infinitely fascinating to me. You know, well, and it's infinitely fascinating because as we were as we were talking about it, would be like. You know, Edison going, fuck you, Tesla. And he's like, no, fuck you, Edison. <laughs> no. Yeah. And Eiffel in the back going, guys, guys, come on. It's fine. Don't worry. That's my French accent. It's really good. Yes. You know? it's, it's a good accent. Oh, 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 we will drink wine and eat cheese. Oh, oh, oh. My wife, the Francophile, is shaking her head in disgust. I, I don't even have to see Jamie to know the look on her face right yes. now. <laughs> Going, I have to take you to other countries. This is not all of this. Well for all me. of this. Yes, all of this. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's just yeah. Again, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like it's just. I think more than anything else, this movie is just really frustrating because you can see the yeah. seeds of a better movie in there, you know. Uh, and I don't know if it's studio interference. It, I don't know if it's Bird just kind of got twisted around and lost the path halfway through or what, but. Something about this movie just doesn't land right, and but but there's enough in there that works. That you're like, oh, I was kind of enjoying myself for a minute there, but I don't know what the fuck is going on. It's it's we I think we talked about this too. It's like it's like Monuments Men, another Clooney movie of of recent yeah. you know, years, and that has a lot of potential, a potentially good premise, and then just does nothing with it, you know. And that that feels like the the case again here. So Clooney, you got to get your groove back. I know you've, you've got to make another good movie sometime. Well, it seems I, like it's been a while, and I feel like he might be trying to you know like he's kind of playing against type a little bit, like he's trying to play like this craggy, grumpy like surly version of himself and it's like no man I, I you know it, like I don't I don't it's not that I don't want to see him stretch his, his muscles a little bit or, or, or do something a little a little different for him but you know it's you, there's no even like glimmers of you know that ocean the Danny Ocean in him you know of that like charismatic like I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm George fucking Clooney like the reason we love him like I don't need th- that whole movie to be that but I need to see just you know faint hints of that, like, color the moments. I mean, Clooney doesn't smile in this entire fucking movie. Like, no. he's just angry beyond belief through this whole movie. And there's, you know, not that I need him to be, like, a happy-go-lucky guy every time, but again, it's like, he becomes this cipher of, you know, uh, you know uh, rage and uh, scorn and uh, abandonment and, you know... Disillusionment, and and at a certain point you're going, yeah, but you're a person too, right? Like there's there's got to be something that you give well, a shit about. Since 1984, I mean, you've yeah. been in your bunker since 1984. Yeah, basically, like, <laughs> stewing silently. Like, uh, no, Jamie, you you had that. You said a great thing um, when we out of outside of the movie. You're like, there's against typecasting, and then there's just miscasting, and that's like I think totally the case here. Yeah, and Jeff, I think you were the one who said uh, that, you know, probably, or maybe was it you, Jamie? I don't remember, who said that Laurie and Clooney probably should have been swapped. Yeah. 
that Clooney mm. Clooney probably should yeah, have been the governor. That was you. Okay, yeah. Uh, Clooney Clooney should have been the Clooney governor. Could have made you believe why his side was righteous, even if it did make sense. Yeah, and that's Hugh true. Laurie, because Clooney gives Laurie a speech does, exactly, yeah. and Hugh and he does it with a smile. And Hugh Laurie is a good curmudgeon. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Hugh Laurie is a great curmudgeon. It almost feels like one of those things where they cast them the other way, and then the two of them got to the set and were like, "Actually, we decided to switch." And Bird's like, "Uh, okay, I guess. I don't." All uh, right, sure. Can we go back for a sec and talk about why George Clooney got kicked out? Yeah, again, like one of those things that doesn't seem to hold within the internal logic of the movie. He made a machine that, that he shouldn't have. Should, yeah, didn't like, but the machine tells you the world is going to end, which is something Hugh Laurie appears to think people need to know. Yeah. And try to use the machine to warn people. So why did inventing it get Clooney kicked out of Tomorrowland? Yeah, again, it's very unclear. And it, it, they sort of boil it down to, I invented a thing I wasn't supposed to invent, and so they kicked me out. Even though the whole point of Tomorrowland... Thing often. Yeah, but also the whole point of Tomorrowland seemed to be, come, invent whatever the fuck you want. You can invent whatever, you can invent anything away from the cares of the world, you know? So the idea that he, he invented the one thing you're not supposed to invent and that got him kicked out, like, I, I, it just doesn't seem to track within the logic of this movie. No, I agree. I, I wonder, too, we haven't talked about this, and I, I feel like this is low-hanging fruit at a certain point, but, like, the co-writer of this movie is Damon Lindelof. Uh, yes. So, Patron saint of d- fucking up the third act. Well, patron saint of a, a intriguing premise and then doing nothing with it. Like, yeah. it's, it's not even just the third act. It's like, okay, but we need, a, we need a story. Not we can't just work with a premise. That's the starting point, you know? Yeah. So I wonder to what extent we, we blame Lindelof. Again, kind of low-hanging fruit. Lovely, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's, I don't know, something to consider. Fruit, yeah. No, I mean, look, I think that's worth, I think that's worth discussion, absolutely. Um, because has Brad Bird made a bad movie? No, I mean all of no, all of his no. stories have been very tight. I mean that's the thing. You know, like when and, and you look at, comes pretty close. The yeah. more we talk about this, sorry, we got caught up in a really time behind. warp sorry. there. Some retro futurism <laughs> happened there. Yes, we did. I, I'm actually in Tomorrowland now, and it's it's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck, I have no short term memory. I feel you're like you're saying like has he made right a bad now. movie or something? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, he hasn't made a bad movie, really. Like, it's, it's, it seems like, what is the new factor here? He's worked with Disney before, mm-hmm. you know? He's, he's worked with sort of within a, uh, an established genre, like, you know, with, uh, with Incredibles or with Admission Impossible and an action globetrotting movie. So it's not, it's not the genre that's hemming him in. It, it, I don't know. It's, Lindelof is, a, is a, the X factor. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much we blame him or how much we just, you know... What who who to blame? I don't know. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. Um, I I wouldn't put it past him. I was going to say. I mean, I think you know that's one of the things that sort of sets his movies apart. Is um, not only does he have a great hold of like action and character, but he, you know he's got a great hold of story. I mean, The Incredibles is a great story, like start to finish. Mission Impossible, uh, Ghost Protocol is one of the better Mission Impossible movies from a story perspective. It's probably the best Mission Impossible from a story perspective. Uh, the and and The Iron Giant is above reproach on every level. So, uh, like, I don't. I, it, that's the thing that baffles me so much about this movie is you have these this story that just sort of runs around in circles for two out of the three acts, and then you've got 
you know, these characters that, you know, they, they sort of go nowhere, you know? They, they're very one-note, and uh, none of them really have a, have a discernible arc that you give a shit about, really. Yeah, no, and I think it's just not fun. Like, the yeah. movie, like, that's the common denominator. It feels like a chore. All of Brett, in all of Brad Bird movies, they're fun, yeah. you know? Like, and they're different kinds of fun, you know? And, they, and they're always, as you say, undergirded with some, some story and some interesting ideas. But they're fun at the end of the day. And I think we would forgive a lot of this movie's faults if it was fun. And it's just not. It's kind of... You know, again, it's it's underdeveloped and overlong. It like does not need to be two hours and ten minutes, and it feels long. So I I don't know. I think that it's that that ultimately is probably its biggest sin. It's, it's just it's not fun. It has no sense of momentum and no sense of you know the sense of awe that it's trying to convey is sorely lacking. You know, in in the movie itself. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, I don't I don't have too much else to say about this. I guess we gotta do Heart of the Ghostbusters unless unless one of you has another thing you'd like to you'd like to bring up. Good. Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be a short one today. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm fine. Yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, heart of heart of the Ghostbusters. Who's your who's your drinking buddy? Who's the who's the person you want to have a drink with uh, in this movie? Uh, Jeff, you you you're in the Keegan Michael Key camp, I hear. Yes. Yes, but again, this is your game has a lot of you know arbitrary rules. So it has to be that <laughs> character within the world. I kind of just want to have a drink with Keegan Michael Key, but yeah. I mean, I guess him as a robot working in a nostalgia shop, I think that's still a pretty good option. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yes, he turns out to be like an evil robot or whatever, but it feels like if you're not someone who shows into that, who shows up there with a pin that he like, therefore his like mission kicks in and he has to kill you. If you were just like a dude who like met him like out on the street, like he seemed really fun. Like his whole thing with the, <laughs> with the doors that like don't close, like, no, my wife has no, no sense of showmanship, you know, like mm-hmm. he actually seems like a fun dude you know he's got like the weird dreads and and he runs that shop which i just want to spend like you know forever in so i I can totally get on board with that choice yeah and i love his pot belly which is like the worst pot belly i've ever seen it's clearly like a (laughs) pillow under his shirt like it's the worst pot belly i've ever seen well and i was gonna say he's skinny as fuck too i mean not that he's like ripped but he's just like a tall gangly guy you know so any attempt to make him look portly in any way is, like, very, very off-kilter. Uh, Jamie? Yes. Yeah, they really should have had Jordan Peele play it if they wanted to... You know, I know, right? Yeah, they got, the wrong, they got the wrong Comedy Central guy. Uh, Jamie, who's your who's your heart of the Ghostbusters? Um, I'm torn between Athena, because I thought she was funny when she shut down, and then we find out later that she doesn't actually have a shutdown. That she's, she's fucking like, with she's her? Yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, and Casey's dad. Casey's dad, uh, that fucking country Tim singer. McGraw. What's his name? Tim McGraw. Tim McGraw. Um, I always want to call him Dwight Yoko. I want to, like, I want to talk to that guy, like a NASA engineer at Canaveral when NASA's shutting down. Yeah. Like, he seems like he'd be really smart and interesting and have a lot to say and at, like, a weird place in his life. I think he'd be interesting to talk to. And because I like that scene where Clooney tries to, you know, peg who she is as a character and is like, Oh, let me guess, like, you're smarter than your dad, he doesn't know what to do with you, and he doesn't respect you, and she's like, what? No, my dad's awesome. Yeah. Like, my dad's encouraging and great. You know, I told him I was going camping, and he hasn't sent the police after me, so that's nice. And also, like, let's give it a weird shout-out to uh, Pierce Gagnon 
in that movie who plays her little brother, the kid from Looper. Yeah. Uh, like, the evil kid from Looper, like, he, he has, like, Still three scenes. He, well, yeah, he's got, like, a very <laughs> otherworldly sense to him, but he's got, like, three scenes, and then it's, like, disappears. You're like, wait, why? Okay. Uh, that could have been, like, any kid, I feel like. It seems like well, such kind of a waste of Pierce Gagnon, which is a shame, because that kid's got chops. When, was it just me, or did young Clooney look like her brother? Yeah, like, did they a lot. Make, like, for, and to the point where I almost I thought, thought it was the, the same, same actor. actor. Yeah, yeah, I did too, for a second. Yeah, no, it's very, very close, absolutely. Oh, you know who we forgot to mention? Is, uh, like, the weird vocal cameo by Judy Greer as her mom, off camera, in that, in that, uh, flashback. Yeah, no, what if there's everything? Everything! <laughs> yeah, so awkward. Uh, yeah, you know, we don't really have a lot of, uh, a lot of supporting characters here, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think for me it's gotta be, it's gotta be, uh, either, uh, Keegan or, uh, or, or, or Athena. I, like, I, I really dig Athena as a character, you know she's she's self sufficient. The idea that she's been you know going around for you know arguably thirty years, uh, just trying to find someone who could you know come in and, and change shit up, and, and she's still been trying to recruit stuff. And you get the sense that it's not just like, well, I'm performing my programming, but like it's that she like she believes in the mission of Tomorrowland, and she like wants to affect change, and she wants to like make you know fix the place, you know. Um, so I, I kind of I kind of respect the hell out of that. Um, then again, she is you know for all appearances you're having a drink with a thirteen year old girl. Yeah, I was gonna say I for all appearances she's a minor. It's a little weird. Yeah, True. yeah. Um, so I guess <laughs> I have a teacher thing going on. Yeah, I guess yes. I, I gotta go with I gotta go with Keegan then. I gotta go with Keegan. Uh, I'd love to go with Catherine Hahn because I I love Catherine Hahn, but she, that that her her robot character was like a big stick in the mud. She was no fun. So. Uh, Keegan's got showmanship, so we're gonna go. I gotta go with Keegan. All right, I, I'm glad we're we, we're never in agreement on Hard the Ghostbusters. I know. You realize I this. know it's a rare it's a rare occasion. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that closes the book on Tomorrowland. Um, you know. Oh well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the title for this. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, well. Uh, Next week, so we, we've recorded this very late in the week. Um, this coming, the, this it's Thursday night now while we're recording. So tomorrow we've got uh, Aloha and San Andreas coming out. Um, I was kind of excited for both, and I've been really disillusioned by both in the last couple of days. Like nobody you, has have anything. Have you seen the reviews for Aloha? Yeah, they're, they're terrible. They're abysmal. Yeah, they're like single digits on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, we're, we've been talking about uh, doing a big, uh, you know, slow uh, Terminator rewatch uh, leading up to the new Terminator movie. Um, we have to start that next week uh, in order to finish before the new Terminator comes out. Terminator comes out 4th of July weekend, uh, so we have to watch Terminator a week for the month of June. So I'm, I'm kind of tempted to say we're just going to watch Terminator next week. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. Well, get your, get your uh, 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 Cyberdyne ducks in a row, uh, <laughs> and we will, uh, we, will, we will rock the original James Cameron Terminator next week. Um, maybe we'll throw something else in, but right now, I think we're just going to stick with Terminator. Uh, 
thank you guys for being here, as always. Uh, lovely wife, Jamie. Not on the Twitters, but nope. you know, that's okay. Uh, Jeff, where can the people find you uh, dispensing wisdom on the Twitter? Um, it's mostly me dispensing wisdom by others. But, uh, sorry, anyways, sorry. Uh, you got, you got cut out there. You're mostly dispensing what? <laughs> I could, we could go a lot of places with this. <laughs> uh, I said I'm dispensing the wisdom of others ah. uh, primarily and not my own wisdom. Every once in a while I'll do something of my own. An uh, epic I'm retweeter. A, I'm a retweeter, yes. Um, and I'm at Ari Grote. At Ari Grote. And you can find me at mdaily01. Uh, the blog is dailyscreening.com and you can follow the podcast uh, uh, on iTunes or on SoundCloud. We've had fun talking. I hope you've had fun listening. Have a lovely evening and a fantastical tomorrow. <laughs>